The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, good day and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition. Got uh, Jim joining me momentarily from uh, the fine state of Florida, which hopefully has warmed up a little bit for him. We'll hear about that in a minute. Uh, Today's show, we're going to do our best to answer listener questions that have been submitted. If you want to send your own questions in for consideration for the show, uh, you would do that by emailing Jim directly. His email address is jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And make sure in the subject line it indicates it's a question for the podcast. The uh, you know the questions that have the greatest chance of making the show are usually a question about one specific thing, not a rambling email about 20 different elements to retirement planning, but a, maybe a singular topic that provides us with enough detail to answer it without uh, giving us a whole bunch of uh, detail to read through that's not really germane to the question. So just a little guidance on what tends to uh, uh, bubble a question up to the top of our list, a couple of tips, if you will. The old days of praising the the, uh, patriots in order to make it to the top of the list have kind of gone away. Uh, Not sure if that was intentional or just how the show has evolved over time. We'll have to ask Jim that. But uh, those clean, concise questions on one particular topic uh, tend to catch our eye a little bit more because they're perfect for the Q&A show. So I'll bring Jim in now, and uh, he's the holder of said questions. Uh, I know we've got a Social Security, and uh, I'm sure, well, I'm not sure he'll dig up one. I think we might have gotten through most of the Irma questions, but we'll see if he brings forth an Irma question as well. Uh, he did forward me, just so you know, the uh, one of the Social Security questions he was interested in because the there was an illustration that the uh, the listener had uh, sent in, and it was important to look at for uh, the question itself. So I did get kind of advance warning on one particular question. So Jim, if you unmute, we're ready for you, and uh, you can share with us if the beach of Florida has gotten warm enough for you to walk on again. I will be going to the beach tomorrow. Good. uh, 
Morning, afternoon, evening. I'm not sure when people are listening to this, folks. Today is February 22nd, Thursday. It is about 2 o'clock Florida time or Eastern time. Still trying to get used to this whole Eastern time thing. But um, I will hopefully make it to the beach tomorrow. I think I will take a day off from my workcation and head up to Siesta Key Beach and uh, walk the beach, grab some lunch, and then come home. And I'm supposed to be going out to dinner with my mom and sister, so I'll come home and go do that. So it should be hopefully a nice Friday. It's supposed to be 75 tomorrow, which is warm uh, compared to what we've had recently. And then next week, which I think I announced uh, on the Q&A, excuse me, the EDU show, that I will be staying an extra week. Did I announce that to everybody? Yes, last show you yes. did. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, that's right, because you had to clarify um, that my sister uh, is divorced from her husband. I, I think I said she's going home to take care of her husband. It was ex-husband. Um, and that she just came back with her boyfriend, remember, from vacation. Yeah. But, um, yes, my sister will be flying home this Sunday to Massachusetts, where she spends her summers to assist uh, with her ex-husband who has a medical issue. And then she will come back the following Sunday uh, as I'm going home. So I think she's flying in a couple hours after I'm flying out. So anyways, there'll be another week in Florida. And next week's supposed to be on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday into the low 80s. Mm-hmm. But those days, I definitely have to work. There's no getting out of those days. Oh, that's too bad because that sounds yeah, lovely. Yeah, it would have been nice on the beach then. But anyways, I hope to get one, maybe two more days of beach walking in. I really am getting uh, attracted to barefoot walking through the sand. Uh, Not necessarily the surf-driven packed sand that's like walking on wet cement sometimes, but that soft sand that forces your ankles and legs to move and you have to really try your balancing. Told you I did seven miles the first time, 6.4 the second. I don't know what I'll end up doing on Friday, but I hope to get a bunch more walking in and get a little bit of different leg workout. Can't, can only help with my hiking, I figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyways, folks, everything in Florida is, is going well. Mom's, mom's good. Uh, weather, again, even though it's cool, uh, I don't mind it. Uh, except for the day I go to the beach, I would like it warm on that day. And uh, that's about it. But Chris is right. There will be a social security question, which I sent him ahead of time because I wanted him to look at the graph. Uh, Do you have an answer for him? Because this one confused me. I do. You don't have to. Okay. Um, Because when I saw it, I was like, huh, I have no idea. And I'll get to what we're getting at in a second, folks. And then there is no Irma question today. Chris, we're going to do two social security questions, if that's okay with you. Sure. I'm flexible. Excellent. Alrighty, folks, let's jump into it. This is the Q&A show. Let's get to the Q's and the A's and not just me yapping about Florida. Okay, um, since you have this, Chris, you probably notice his first question is an eight-part bulleted point. Do you want to go through that real quick or do you want to skip it? Do you think that's worth – is there anything um, you value you can add to him or our listeners if I go through that? Because it has nothing to do with the yeah. second question. Now, that first multiple part thing was really about approaching Social Security claiming as a break-even analysis. 
and which we're not fans of that approach to determining your optimal social security claiming because that approach essentially focuses on a 50-50 probability of of making the right decision and what i mean by that is if you live past the break even point um you should have waited to claim and if you live shorter then you made the right choice and break even uh usually happens the way the actuarial tables work for the social security benefit calculations are pretty much uh designed to break even at your um uh, you know average mortality and so when you get too hung up on that essentially you know kind of that's the quote game you're playing um that statistically uh, if that's what you were, if that's what you're prioritizing, is is you know a break-even focus, then I think a strategy that derives from a break-even calculation could make sense. In our minds, we're worried more about if you are in the half that lives longer than the break-even, um, are you going to be pulling the rug out from under your spouse when you pass away? Having claimed early, it's going to leave them with a smaller survivor benefit. And as long as you have other financial resources that you can ensure that your your spouse won't be, I guess, upset at you as you're laying in the grave, uh, that you left them with suboptimal secure income sources after you pass away, uh, maybe the break even makes sense. But if you're focused more on the longevity protection powers of having nice, robust, secure income, which Social Security will provide, not only is it, quote, secure, uh, from our definition, but uh, also has an inflation adjustment, which is very difficult to obtain from other sources these days, a true CPI-derived inflation adjustment. Um, we we love it for its longevity protection. So we focus more on living past average mortality and what you know what's the best strategy there. So I know we didn't read his question, but that's really the essence of what he was asking and i know a lot of people ask this same question they treat social security as an independent claiming decision and they find a bunch of calculators on the internet that are are break even based calculators and think they've you know they've found their optimal claiming approach because uh, they believe that the break even point is out farther than than they're likely to live um and if i think yeah so okay. so that's uh you know, I was I was about to say something rude, like you you, you can't promise your mortality, <laughs> um, and you know what if you live longer than that? You can't go back and adjust your claiming. You've made an irreparable run. Um, yeah, and let's let's rabbit decision, hole this. So. Let let me rabbit hole this then. Mm -hmm. Since since you decided to chat about it, I'm not going to read the whole email to this listener who sent it, and to our listeners in general because it is quite long. But Chris is correct. His gist was, should he claim earlier than, and he used maximize my social security. Isn't that what we use to maximize my social security? I we forget. do. We do. Okay. We use that to crunch the numbers and um, it will spit out its proposed optimal um, um, strategy. strategy. The authors of MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com are not fans of a break-even approach. But you could analyze the numbers and look at it as such, particularly if you reduced your mortality age, um, 
down somewhere around median life expectancy, then it starts to spit out strategies that are kind of consistent with a break-even approach. Okay. So he, in short, used Maximize My Social Security. He disagrees with its finding. He wants to claim a little bit earlier because his break-even age in his calculations, that's assuming he did the spousal correct, because that was a big part of his, his discussion, is age 86. It is bullet point two, Chris, that I think changes the dynamic a bit. He writes in bullet point two, I have not started claiming I am 66 years old. My original plan was to wait until I turned 70. I'm thinking there is a better strategy to help fund our fun, F-U-N, activities. And the surviving spouse will not really need Social Security income to contribute to their minimum dignity floor. When I read both of those, and we don't have much more than that. I don't know what he has in assets. I don't know uh, what his minimum dignity floor is, how much secure income he has. But as I read that, I thought to myself, this guy doesn't need Social Security. That's essentially what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, gee, if I turn it on earlier, it's a better way to fund, F-U-N-D, my fun, F-U-N, spending. And I thought to myself, well, if you don't need Social Security delaying it, makes no sense. Right. And if his, he said, the surviving spouse, so it's not look like they're trying to optimize a spousal benefit. The surviving spouse isn't, I don't like how we use the word really. I would be better if his verbiage in section two was the surviving spouse will not need social security income to contribute to the minimum dignity floor. He put the word really between not and need to read not really need. So what does that mean? Not really. Is it that you have enough assets and you think you're going to continue to have enough assets that the surviving spouse could easily annuitize some of those other assets so they don't, quote unquote, really need Social Security? If that's the case and you're looking at taking Social Security to pay for fun, F-U-N expenses, I'd be receptive to turning it on and get away from the break-even analysis. That's that's immaterial. If what I described is your situation, you don't really need the Social Security, then sure, turn. you're going to delay one to maximize it. Turn the other one on. Um, He's already actually, no, you're not delaying on. it, right? Yeah. The wife already turned hers on. He was going to delay his to 70, but he's not saying I want to do that anymore. I think I'll turn it on earlier. Mm-hmm. If you're going to turn it on to fund FUN expenses and the intent is to let your assets continue to grow and you don't really need the Social Security, I say go for it. That would be the only rabbit hole I would go down is that bullet point number two. And he's overlooking everything that the the break-even analysis is immaterial at that point. You don't need Social Security. If you don't need it, to me, turn it on. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah. uh, The only thing I'd like to add is when you said if you have assets, you could annuitize. There still currently is not 
a better annuitization option than annuitizing more Social Security income, though. Correct. So when Absolutely. they when they say when he says we'll not really need the Social Security income if it's because there's other secure income, like they already have an annuity, they've already got pension income, and in combination with the the earlier claimed Social Security, there'll be plenty for minimum dignity floor coverage, I would agree. Then we don't have to rely on Social Security to provide that longevity protection that we so value uh, in the world of Social Security. And then turning it on early can can make sense there. But if it's because he thinks he can annuitize later some assets, then I think if he he needs to do some different math, not a break-even analysis, but look at what it would cost to buy the extra inflation-adjusted income, which you can't even replicate perfectly, but something similar to inflation-adjusted income from Social Security, what that would cost you from your assets to buy in the open marketplace, and you'll find it's far more expensive than the cost of delaying Social Security. And the cost of delaying Social Security is the benefits that you give up in pursuit of the larger delayed benefit. You can think of that as the cost of annuitizing additional Social Security income. And right now, the way the math works, and this is almost always the case, the formula inside Social Security for benefits and the delaying is better than annuitization from private insurance companies. So um, I would propose that. So unless there's already existing secure income that's protecting particularly the survivor's minimum dignity floor later, I wouldn't treat Social Security as quite as disposable. True. I agree there as well. So there's not enough information. But anyway, so I just kind of decided to chat about this a bit. It's, uh, it's that word really, that bridge word between will not and need. If you didn't put really in, it said the surviving spouse will not need Social Security income. I think I'd be a little bit more definitive in my statement that, yeah, you should go ahead and turn it on and start using it to pay for fun. So I'm not quite sure what you meant by the word really. But as Chris said, if the word really is implying that you hope to annuitize, I think you'll have enough assets to annuitize. Chris is correct, and I should have made mention of that earlier. Uh, the best w- annuity you can buy is delaying Social Security. Because that's essentially what you're doing, folks. By delaying it, you're going to start consuming your assets. That's essentially buying more secure income later. You cannot get a CPI-adjusted lifetime income stream through an annuity anymore. The principal was the last company to offer that, and I think they stopped about three, four years ago now, and you, nobody, nobody offers a COLA-adjusted, CPI COLA-adjusted annuity. It's only stated percentage amounts, one, two, three, four, five, that you can, quote, unquote, buy. Okay, let's get to the question then that he asked Mm -hmm. with his chart. So I'll describe the chart. What he did is he said, my second question, pasted below is part of my Social Security statement. My understanding is every month after my full retirement age, up until I reach age 70, my monthly payout should increase by two-thirds of 1%. But why would my statement below show that I will get the exact same payout at my full retirement age and at age 67? 
His full retirement age, folks, is 66 and 6 months. And his chart shows, according to Social Security, he will receive 3597 If he claimed at 66 and 1 month, in other words, 5 months earlier, his chart shows he would only get 3497 And this continues all the way to age 70. But interestingly, at 67, his full retirement age, the chart no, shows... No, his full the, retirement age is 66 and 6. Oh, excuse me. 66 and 6 months, his full retirement age. Interestingly, at 67, it's still showing $3,597. dollars mm-hmm. But at 68, it's risen to 3837 and at 70, 4604 mm-hmm. So what's going on? Why is his FRA, full retirement age, at 3597 and his benefit at 67, six months later, also 3597 So this is all a little rabbit hole nuance to Social Security and how they award the delayed retirement credits. And so I'm suspecting that even though he didn't tell us this, I'm suspecting he was born in probably July. And the reason I say that is that 66 and six months, that would put his full retirement age at January. Well, January, if he's 66 and six months in January, he's going to turn 67 that same year. Well, every year that you wait past your full retirement age, you deserve and are awarded what are called delayed retirement credits. And he's correct. They are two thirds of 1% per each month that you delay. However, they only grant you the delayed retirement credits once per year in January. Essentially in January, they look and they say, Um, based on your claiming age, you have earned X number of delayed retirement credits and will apply those for the upcoming year. So when he claims at 66 and six months, which I'm betting is the month of January when he turns his full retirement age, he's been awarded all of the delayed retirement credits through December of the prior year. That's what he gets and has to live with for the entire upcoming year. He won't get additional delayed retirement credits until January of the next year. So since he turns 66 in six months and 67, both in the same calendar year, his benefit for that year will be, will start out whether he claims January or he claims later on that year, which I'm betting is probably July or June, he's going to get the same monthly amount for the rest of that year. However, then January of the following year, the year that he turns 68, they will look back to the past year and grant him, say he did wait to 67, that six months past his full retirement age, and they will then grant him that 4% increase because he claimed at 67 rather than 66 and six months. But for the whole year, the year that he turned 66 and six months, which also I'm betting is the same year that he turned 67, he's going to have been awarded the same de- delayed retirement credits because the award is only through the previous December. So that is just a funky way of how Social Security actually gives you the delayed retirement credits. They're not real time unless you claim at 70. If you claim at 70, they go ahead and grant them in full 
all the way up to age 70 and there's no waiting. So if you turn 70, you know, not at the end of the year or the beginning of the year, you turn 70 somewhere in the middle of the year, you still get all of your delayed retirement credits applied immediately from month one. Why they chose to do that? My guess is there was a technical reason as far as their their technology, their uh, computer system wasn't good at kind of real time doing this. They they a lot of things like this on old computer systems when they make these adjustments, they do what are called batch runs, which is where they will say, well, it's you know it's that time of the year where we're going to update everybody's delayed retirement credits. Uh, Let's get that report ready, and they spend some time prepping it and getting it ready, and then they run it, and it might take you know 48 hours for that batch run to go through all the millions and millions of people, and they don't do that constantly. They just do it maybe once a year, or I just read something the other day where they are claiming that they're only doing these batch runs of delayed retirement credit updates once every couple of years. So that means that there might be a longer delay for you to be made whole than uh, in the past. And that's partially because of the backlog of Social Security, which is certainly in part due to their underfunding as far as uh, the money it would take to actually run the whole system uh, in a more modernized, efficient way. But uh, that's why his statement shows the same benefit estimate for 66 and 6 and 67. It's because of that funky way they apply the delayed retirement credits. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So in other words, I'm going to be screwed because I was born in July. Uh, It depends on when you claim. Since you're going to claim at 70, it's not going to matter. I'll have to find someone who knows Social Security to walk (laughs) me through claiming strategies. Yeah, when the time comes, we can see if we can find somebody. Yeah, I think we can. I mean, maybe we can post on one of the planning forms if anybody knows somebody yeah. who knows Social Security. Or you could send into a podcast a question. I could. Maybe I could write to a podcast, mm-hmm. see if my question will be answered. Yeah, yeah exactly. Good point. Many, many things I can do. Mm-hmm. Okay, the next email came in. Uh, no hint. He is from, actually, I thought he would have been from Indiana, but it looks like he's from Illinois, the city he's from. Uh, is uh, also in Indiana. I think much more known the Indiana city than the Illinois city, I think. So I I got nothing. I got no hint for Illinois, uh, except for a state that I wouldn't want to live in. How's that? That's a good hint. But That sounds kind of rude. (laughs) (laughs) Illinois has very high taxes and very disfavorable gun laws, as far as I'm concerned, as somebody who's a hunter- and wants to get back into competitive shooting, which I used to do um, prior to becoming a police officer. It's funny. After I became a cop, I stopped competitively shooting. And then I haven't really shot at all. I used to shoot sporting clays and PPC. Mm-hmm. But um, I'd like to, as I start to retire, get back into sporting clays and uh, competitive handgun shooting again. But for that, I'd like to live in a state that has a little bit more favorable gun laws. Okay, now you know why I said Illinois is a state I wouldn't want to live in. Plus, their taxes are through the roof. Okay, so his question, I'll skip the beginning part. He referenced, this goes back, uh, gosh, when did he send this in? Had to have been several months ago. Yeah, November. So he sent this in in November, referencing a podcast we did in October. And it was when I came back from my Charles Schwab conference with uh, Jacob, one of the juniors in the office. Um, I'll skip that part that he references and jump into his question. 
Also, and it's not really a big deal, but on the same podcast, and, and he had, again, folks, I skipped a bunch already. On the same podcast, there was a question about a remarried person before age 60 who was contemplating getting another divorce and subsequently claiming a Social Security death benefit on a previous spouse. Chris said they could. But I thought it might be important to mention that they could also claim the death benefit if they were widowed and not divorced from the subsequent spouse. Is that true? I thought my mom did something similar to that, but I could be confused because of military survivorship versus Social Security. But her first husband was killed in a military accident in the 1950s. She married my father, and he predeceased her. I know she then got benefits back from her first husband, when my father died. But I'm not sure if those were Social Security survivor benefits or some form of military pension. I just thought it's a much more likely event to be widowed versus divorced a second or third or more times. No need to answer if this isn't relative or relevant or interesting. I thought it was kind of interesting Chris to take a little bit of time and explain kind of the flexibility you have with survivor benefits that you don't necessarily get with spousal benefits. Sometimes we jokingly say the ex is worth more dead than alive. So why don't you just talk a little bit about what this gentleman's referencing, but also some of the differences, Chris, with survivor and spousal benefits with death and divorce. Yeah, so um, in this case, the original question that I did answer was someone who was getting divorced, and they were, for the second time, and they were wondering if they would have access again to the survivor benefit from, we'll call them spouse number one versus spouse number two. And essentially, that is that was correct, that you, you could. Uh, but more generally... When you have a spouse that was, um, uh, we'll call it a previous spouse, um, if you'd been married for at least 10 years before you got divorced, which is divorce is the first step in getting remarried, right? You've got to unhitch from from the the first spouse. Uh, As long as you had been married for at least 10 years, you retain rights similar to a spouse and sometimes even more favorable to a current spouse to claim spousal benefits and survivor benefits. And those are two distinct things. Always keep in mind spousal benefits are what you get to claim when the other person is alive and the other requirements have been met for you to get the spousal benefit. Survivor benefits are when the spouse or ex-spouse to whom you were married at least 10 years passes away. There's also this other rule that a lot of people know about that if you are collecting or have are entitled to uh, a survivor benefit from a previous spouse, you can actually remarry 
and still collect the survivor benefit from, we'll call them spouse number one, while being married to spouse number two, three, four, five, or six, doesn't matter, as long as you didn't remarry until after the age of 60. They created that rule so that people felt in their older age, if they were wanted to get remarried, maybe lost a spouse in the past, but they were unwilling to marry because they were worried about losing their social security benefits that were attached to that spouse number one, they came up with that special rule. Well, it turns out that if you become unmarried, the, the, the marriage, the second marriage to spouse number two is um, no longer, whether that spouse passed away or you become divorced, essentially, even if you remarried before 60, that second marriage, when it stops, it opens the door for you to reattach to spouse number one or spouse number two if they were to pass away. Um, as long as, again, if it's a divorce, uh, you would have had to been married for at least 10 years to retain it. But what this new listener, this, this is kind of referring to that original answer I gave, but he's pointing out that uh, instead of the second spouse, a divorce happening, the second spouse dies. That does, just because you were married to them when they died, doesn't mean you're restricted to only claiming a survivor benefit from spouse number two's record. When they die, you're no longer married, and that opens the door to any previous spouse and the records to which you would otherwise be entitled. So that is kind of a unique uh, strategy uh, that kind of opens up, um, and, and the strategies are especially varied for a survivor uh, that has their own benefit in, in play as well, because your own retirement benefit and the different survivor benefits to which you might be entitled are different pools of money, and you can actually claim one without it affecting the other one. And that, uh, which isn't so much available to spouses anymore that are married and still alive, a lot of those interesting claiming strategies where you could kind of, you know, pick and choose your benefits and affect one but not the other and uh, that sort of thing, that's, that's kind of gone now. That's been phased out with legislative changes. But um, the survivor benefit strategies are pretty much intact. So they are so varied and complicated to look at. What I tell people is instead of trying to learn them all, uh, keep them at the, you know, on the top of your mind in case a spouse passes away. Um, just plant the seed in your mind that if your spouse passes away and you have not yet claimed your benefits in particular, but, but even if you've claimed you should immediately look for specific social security analysis and advice because as a survivor, you might have open to you some very useful and valuable claiming strategies that if you don't pursue them, social security is not going to chase you down to have you do this. And there are times where there's tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars at stake if you know how to claim them. And so just the general rule, if you or someone you know loses a spouse or a, an ex-spouse to whom they were married for at least 10 years passes away, 
those people should immediately seek very specific and knowledgeable Social Security claiming advice to analyze their options because they might leave money on the table otherwise. So just keep that in mind. It's, it's, it would be too much of a burden for everybody to become experts in this so they could deal with this if it happened because it doesn't happen to most people. These strategies aren't you know, available to everybody, but to the select few where the right combination of variables have happened, there could be a lot of extra money available in the form of benefits. So, is that uh, my cue? That little pause, that awkward I was pause. Trying to, well, I was trying to think of the code word we were. Oh using. yeah, what was that code word you were supposed to it's use? Like sandwiches or something completely random. No, it wasn't sandwiches. That no, was a bird. It was uh, goldfinch or something. Goldfinch? Yeah, it might have been because I think one of our yeah, trivia one questions of the hints. was a bird. Yeah, it was a bird. Yeah, How about okay. if I just yell bird? <laughs> I don't know. We'll get it figured out. <laughs> Maybe. The other day when I was driving my mom home, that song, I think from the Trash Man, um, The Bird is the Word, A Bird is the Word, yeah. is, uh-huh. was on. Uh-huh. What a horrendous, horrendous song from her her era. Although we looked it up, it came out in 64. I was going to say, it's not her era. Well, is she it? was kind of 50s. It kind of, sounds kind of 50-ish. Mom was born in 39. So she kind of grew yeah. up in the 50s and yeah. uh, likes 50s music. But... Do you ever listen to that song, Bird oh, is I the Word? The, yeah, I the know Bird the, is the I, Word? I know oh, the song, yeah. What an annoying, horrendous song. Really, really deep lyrics in that song. They say the same thing over again. The Bird is the Word. The Bird is the uh-huh. Word or something like that. It was it was horrendous. It's a catchy okay. tune, though. Say what? It's a catchy tune, though. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that okay. Beach Boys, beach music, strange music era. This next question, new question of the week, we got Social Security question questions in as a new question of the week. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to ask more Social Security questions. This is kind of a PSA, new question of the week. It's not really a question. I think it's something, though, that you might want to uh, chime in a little on. Not much. We don't have to go too deep because we we have talked about much of what he's going to mention. Um, his hint for you. My state has the most diners in the world and is sometimes referred to as the diner capital of the world. And again, I don't vet these hmm. questions. Uh, I'll just say what come came to mind. I would I equate Ohio maybe with lots of diners. Really? Yeah. No, it's not Ohio, but oh. it's odd. Um, New my, Jersey. My guess is odd. Well, I don't know. Uh, I don't think when I am contemplating moving to Ohio, it's not because of the diners. I don't know. But Jersey, that kind of makes sense to me. To me, I equate diners to gritty northeast cities. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. That's where you, you see diners. But anyway, it says New Jersey has the most diners in the world and is referred to as the diner capital mm-hmm. of the world. I did not know that about New Jersey. And, and it's the... Uh... The Garden State. And it's the Garden State. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Okay. He said, I think I have some good news mm-hmm. for anyone trying to create their minimum dignity floor number. Mm-hmm. And he wants me to share this with everybody. Okay. In particular, with respect to the transportation category. Remember, MDF folks, those expenses that every human must cover. 
for the rest of their life, whether they have money or not. It forms a huge, huge foundation of our approach to retirement planning, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care costs. So he's saying he has some help with transportation. Chris and Jim have mentioned that the costs for just one car should be included in your MDF. And that is correct, listeners. Chris and I do believe one car. Many people have more than one car. I've shared with you, I've got three or four. I can't remember. I think I have four now. Um, none of them are fancy dancy, but they all serve a separate purpose. But when I calculate my minimum dignity floor, it is based on one car, not four. The other three cars would be covered and paid for through discretionary fund dollars. But I'm not going to protect with lifetime stream of guaranteed income, whether that's Social Security. I have no pension. I have very little Social Security, as most people know. I've talked about that on the podcast and the reasons behind that. So I'm going to be buying the mother of all annuities. But I'm not going to annuitize, if you will, car two, three, four, five, just one vehicle. So, so far, he's correct, listeners. Chris and I do believe that one vehicle should be part of the minimum dignity floor. Second, third, fourth, part of your fund. That's our opinion. You can disagree if you'd like. Even in the case of a couple, though, Chris, correct? That's what we mean. A couple technically needs just one car, not really two in retirement. Do you ever have anyone override you and want two cars in their MDF, by the way? Rarely. Rarely. they. I think they kind of agree with our, when I explain our logic, our logic is if you're retired, a retired couple, if you ran out of assets, because remember, that's the whole purpose of establishing the minimum dignity floor is what funding does there need to be in place guaranteed for the rest of your life to cover a batch of expenses that we call the minimum dignity floor if you were to run out of all the, of your other assets. Even if it's not likely you would, that's our approach, that we want to figure out what would you need to cover if you ran out of assets. And so I ask them, uh, or, or tell them our logic, which is if you truly ran out of assets, we feel that a retired couple uh, could function fine with one vehicle between them since they're n- neither one is commuting to work or anything. And uh, that's our logic for putting one in the minimum dignity floor. Uh, not that we won't fund additional. We certainly do fund additional cars. It's just not in the minimum dignity floor category. So that's that's our logic. That's kind of what we did. But and every once in a while, we'll have some overrides. Uh, but that's it's actually pretty rare. People usually kind of agree with that logic. Okay. So then he goes on. And he says, Jim and Chris have mentioned that the cost for just one car, and it should include gas, average maintenance expenses, insurance, and a buffer or an amortized buffer for the replacement of a vehicle after an estimated eight to maybe 10 years. Jim and Chris also suggest looking to AAA for their guide to determine the cost of car ownership. And that's the good news. And he goes on to say that he went to AAA's website and he said not Excuse me, I went to Triple Z's website. It provides the annual cost of ownership information on all the specified transportation categories. Or am I missing something? I've attached a picture of what Triple A told me when I entered my vehicle. 
And he indicates, and I see the picture, state of residence, New Jersey, selected vehicle, Toyota Corolla Cross Hybrid SE four-door SUV all-wheel drive. Wow, they get really specific into the type of car you can put in. They have the MSRP of that vehicle. And then he um, played around with uh, the breakdown between city and highway driving. It's a sliding bar. His is pretty much in the center. And the price for gas is also a sliding bar. And he slid his to about $3.20 a gallon. And then he got a printout, Chris, that he wants to share. It shows that AAA is suggesting he uh, add to his MDF, for lack of a better way, $11,381 a year for the vehicle for a five-year total of about $57,000. And then they broke it down by his fuel, the estimated maintenance and repair expenses for that vehicle, his estimated insurance costs based on the state he lives in, fees and taxes and registration based on the state he lives in, finance charges for financing a replacement vehicle, and depreciation charges. So he's wondering, is this correct? Is AAA kind of pulling it all together for him, and he doesn't have to go out and track his insurance, his maintenance, his gas. What says you, because you're the one who does this mostly at the firm? That's the approach we take uh, by default, which is to rely on what arguably is one of the premier, um, I guess, holding places of of, uh, driver ownership costs, uh, and evaluations of cars and what it really costs to keep them, operate them, replace them, etc. And they are gracious enough to provide publicly their research that has their huge database of, of users and all with all the research that they do on, on various cars. And uh, that's exactly what we do is we they supply for us... Um, we don't use the exact tool that he is. They've added a few tools that are a little more consumer friendly. We pull a little more raw data from them um, that they supply that gives us a bunch of different categories of cars. I think it's up to about nine different categories of cars now. And they break it down by the variable costs. So the cost per mile, which should be things like fuel and maintenance and you know replacing tires and windshield wipers and that kind of stuff. And then the more fixed costs of just owning the car, uh, the cost of the car itself, periodic replacement, insurance, registration, things like that. And while it's not as good as someone, if they came to us and they had very detailed information that they've tracked for their own usage with their car, with maintenance and all that kind of stuff, could they override it? Yeah, but... um, that's very few people actually track all the costs of owning a car to the level of detail that AAA does. So years ago, we used to ask people, well, what do you do this? How about how often do you usually replace your tires? I mean, we had this big, long section of our questionnaire just about transportation. And most people just didn't, weren't able to give us the kind of detail we needed to come up with a reliable number. They just didn't track things that way. And when I stumbled years ago, on this AAA data, 
I was just so relieved because it was a way to let an expert, AAA, help us understand what it does it really cost to drive, to own and drive certain types of cars. And um, we've used those ever since. And I think it's a, you know, a rust, robust way of doing it. And it takes the burden off of doing your own tracking of every single dollar that you spend on your car. And uh, it's, it's quite nice that they provide that stuff to the public for free. And then he ends with exactly that, kind of. He says, thanks for the enjoyable and educational podcast. I just wish putting together the minimum dignity for values for my other categories was as easy. <laughs> right. Yeah. We all do, listener. Right. We all do. So anyways, I just wanted to share that with people kind of as a PSA and a new question of the week and uh, get some clarity from Chris if, if, in fact, he feels comfortable relying on AAA. I certainly do as well. I actually feel more comfortable relying on it than estimates from people because I'm the one who wrote the original, quote unquote, guide. We used to call it a guide. And this is going back, gosh, over a decade ago. And it was actually printed. It's all electronic and online now. And then it was binded, one of those spiral binders. And yeah, we asked a dozen or more questions about vehicle ownership. And this guide was, was it 60, 70 or 80 pages, Chris? I can't remember. It was quite big. It got pretty long. And it was, it was big. And people had to fill this all in. And a lot of people told us it was hard coming up with all of this. And again, Chris found the AAA and who better than uh, the American Automobile Association with all the data and knowledge that they have to give projections. And keep that in mind, folks. We say this all the time. When you're crunching your numbers, they're going to be wrong. Just accept that. Now, garbage in, garbage out. So I'd rather rely on AAA because I think it's based on something sound and a large pool of, of numbers and a cross-section of society. And I, I feel comfortable with those numbers. But it's not going to be exactly correct. We say this all the time. Any individual data number that you are calculating as you put your retirement plan together, and I know when we work with people and we put their retirement plans together, we have well over a thousand, if not more, individual data numbers. If you add them all up, each year of retirement is a separate set of data numbers. And people are projected to live 20, 25, 30, 35 years. You start adding up every single conceivable data number, there's thousands of them. And I can all but guarantee you, any individual one is most likely wrong. But the law of large numbers say, if you analyze a whole host, the more numbers, that's why it's called the law of large numbers, the more numbers you analyze, even if they individually, they are wrong collectively, the trends those numbers show is quite accurate. And retirement planning is all about the trends, not trying to pinpoint exactly as the previous listener was getting to, what is my exact break-even age on my Social Security? Or trying to project exactly what your cell phone bill is going to be at age 87 in the month of June. Who cares? I don't even know if you'll have a cell phone bill at age 87. 
We might have some other type of gadget or some bundled service. The idea is to look at what the trends of your minimum dignity floor are showing, what the trends of your asset balances are showing, the trends of your RMDs. That's what you're looking for. So I feel comfortable relying on AAA and not necessarily a client saying, well, I'm going to replace my tires every four years and I'm going to use Michelin's that I buy at Costco with a discount on their annual sale or something like that. Just use the averages, rely on companies like AAA and others that that can provide some decent input numbers. And uh, anyways, anything you want to add before I go on to the next question? Uh, no, other than they've, AAA has, just to let everybody know, they, they used to provide the data in a more usable form for us in a kind of a written PDF report, which they have not technically updated for two years. Um, and they've moved instead to this online calculator, which isn't quite as flexible um, because uh, it's more user-friendly for folks like you. Um, we might have to revise our approach um, coming up and, and find a way to use that online calculator where you just select a bunch of choices and then it spits out the number for you, which, again, it's kind of calling upon the research data that they have. But the, uh, the brochure that I sometimes refer people to or talk about that we use technically hasn't been updated uh for two years now um about a year and a half i guess maybe but it's uh uh, still recent enough where it still makes sense and they've got nine different uh vehicle types on it with all the variable and fixed costs associated with these vehicles it's very very handy for what we do but uh that new tool that he's talking about, the listener he wrote in, that's actually a much more user-friendly way of doing this. And you can go in and, and run your own estimates and change a few of your own variables. And now you've got a nice transportation cost to drop into your minimum dignity floor. Perfect. All right. A couple of questions I want to get to. Okay. This one is a, a pretty good one. So it says, hello, my name, you can call me. Guess what we can call him, Chris? George, hopefully, because that's what yeah. we're going to call Isn't that a song? You can call me George. No. No. Um, uh, don't, don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me. You can call me Al. Correct. Yeah. Bye. Call me. Uh, that short guy. Mm-hmm. He's short and that he plays the guitar. Mm-hmm. Was in a music video with uh, Chevy Chase. Oh, gosh, what's his name? He was short, mm-hmm. plays the guitar. Paul God, Simon. I can't remember his name. What's his name? Paul Simon. Paul Simon, that's it. Doesn't he? He sings Kodachrome too, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I can see him. I just can't remember. You know me. I'm terrible with names. Okay. Hello, my name is George. My hint: I live in the state that is supposed to have the largest ball of twine. I think this is a repeat question, so you should get it. Uh, wasn't it Kansas? Kansas. Or Iowa? I think it's one of those. Well, I'll read his answer. Okay. I live in the state that's supposed to have the largest ball of twine. That is in Darwin, Minnesota. Mm. However, Cocker City, Kansas now claims they have the largest ball of twine. 
How the hell do you know who has the largest ball of twine? I think I'd go by weight. I don't know. But anyways, I've been listening to your podcast for two years. I have gone back to your show on 6-15 of 2019. Wow, he went mm-hmm. way back. Um, 6-15 of 2019, about funding a special needs trust. At that time, there was a person from Connecticut trying to figure out the best way to fund his son's special need trust. You discussed income investment only variable annuity wrapper, as well as a second to die universal life policy. Mm-hmm. Our main concern for our son is the high tax rate on trusts. So let me pause there before I get to his question, folks. In a special needs trust or in any discretionary trust that's going to hold assets and pass them out at the discretion of the trustee who's acting on behalf of the grantor who's usually passed away or mentally incapacitated and can't make legal decisions, but for the most part, the grantor's passed. So the trustee has discretion to pass money out or not pass money out based on the parameters that the grantor, the person who created the trust in the first place, established. That's a discretionary trust. Those trusts hold the assets. Well, someone has to pay the taxes. If the trust is not going to pass out the income generated, whether it's income being taxed as income, as in income taxes, or whether it's quote-unquote income that was generated through dividends or capital gains, whatever the case, someone has to pay those taxes. Well, that someone, in the case of a discretionary trust, is the trust itself. And trusts have what is known as the compressed trust tax rate. In short, a trust will pay the highest marginal rate in effect at the time. After just realizing, I believe, and Chris can Google it if he hasn't already, I believe it's about 14, today, 14-something thousand of quote-unquote income. Yeah, it's 15,200. 15200 mm-hmm. After earning $15,200, everything else is taxed at whatever the highest marginal rate is in existence. Who knows what it'll be? Right now it's 37. It's going to go up to 39.6 in another year and a half. Who knows what it's going to be in the future? Could be 40. Could be back up to 50 or 70 under, under Reagan not too long ago. There was tax rates way up at 70% before it started to be cut. So who knows what it's going to be in the future, but discretionary trust, the cost of that protection and control, if you will, is you're going to give most of your money to your damn uncle. So funding a special needs trust or any discretionary trust doesn't have to be a special needs beneficiary. In the case of a special needs beneficiary, you generally just don't want to pass out hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to someone who can't make legal decisions for themselves or someone who is disabled and and needs 
uh, help um, because a lot of times they'll lose any type of state benefits that they're entitled to. And oftentimes they can't manage their own money and it's going to expose them to to possible fraud and theft. So you kind of have to hold the money in a discretionary trust for them. And the sad cost is the outrageous taxes. Now, there's ways around that. And what we shared with people on that podcast way back in 2019 was if you can get the appropriate asset into the trust. So let me continue with his question and I'll explain what I mean by that. Our concern is the high tax rate on trusts. My question is the following. I'm 63, my wife 61. We are both in reasonably good health. Our son is 29 and has severe autism, and he still lives with us. We have $4 million in IRA accounts, $2 million in brokerage accounts, and $250,000 in a bank account. We were planning on using the IRA accounts now to fund our retirement and let the brokerage accounts and the checking account continue to grow and leave those accounts to the special needs trust once we both pass away. So let's pause there. I like what he's getting at because here's the thing, folks. When you leave an IRA, remember he has $4 million in an IRA. What do we call we, we break our taxes into tax diversification, Chris. What are the three categories we put it in and what would the IRA fall in? So we have accounts that we consider always taxable, meaning as distributions are taken from the account, they're always taxable. The never taxable, just like it sounds, as distributions come out, if they're done in a qualified manner, they are not taxed. And then may be taxable because likely some portion at least of the account can come out without taxes, but some other portion is likely to be taxed. And it all depends on the circumstances, and that's why the word maybe is used. A traditional IRA or traditional 401k is considered, in our eyes, always taxable. The only kind of caveat to that is if you give it away, uh, then you're not taxed on it. If you're giving it to an entity that isn't taxed, like a charity, but that's a separate thing, you know. But uh, traditional IRA money would be always taxable. As it's taken out, whether it's you or a beneficiary, uh, that money will be considered income and be taxed. Exactly. So if they left $4 million and named the special needs trust as beneficiary of that IRA, all $4 million, let's talk in today's dollars, not what could be in there if they, they're only in their early 60s. What if they pass away in another 20, 25, or even 30 years? What if one of them lives into their 90s? So let's not look at what it might be in the future. Let's just talk today's dollars. If they left $4 million inside an IRA to a special needs trust, the good news is it will most likely, we don't have definitive guidance from the IRS, but all indications are they will allow undersecure the special needs trust if it has a disabled beneficiary to be stretched. So it's very likely this trust may be able, excuse me, the IRA may be able to be stretched to the benefit 
in the sense it's not going to have to be closed within 10 years. You take $4 million and try to close it within 10 years, you're taking some buka bucks out of that account every year. And any amount above 15200 being paid into the trust is going to be taxed at 37, soon to be 39.6, and who knows in the future, percent. Not counting state taxes. We have to throw that in there as well. Um, he's in Minnesota. I don't know if that's a high tax or low tax state. But between federal and state taxes, he could be looking at losing 40, and in the not too distant future, 45, 50% of the money that he's trying to leave to his special needs child. So the always taxable IRA is not a wise asset to leave in because the money that comes out of the IRA and goes into the trust is always going to be subject to taxes. And trusts pay the highest taxes after 15200 The guy's got $4 million. You do the math. A lot of loss if he left the IRA to the trust. However, he also has a brokerage account with $2 million in it. What do brokerage accounts get at their death, at least on the current tax law, Chris? Brokerage accounts get a step up in basis, so any unrealized gain essentially disappears once it passes uh, after death. Exactly. So let's just say the $2 million he has, he originally put a million in, just making that number up. If he and has a million again, if he sells it during life, he's got to pay capital gains taxes on a million bucks. But if he dies and his wife dies and there's nobody left and it's given to his son via the special needs trust, which the son needs, somebody with severe autism may not be able to handle millions and millions of dollars. They need to be protected. So with a step up in basis, if they put a million in and they die when it's worth two million, that million dollars of gain is wiped out and all two million goes into the trust as basis. In other words, tax free. However, the growth, yes, on the asset inside the trust will start to be subject to taxes. Now, there's ways around that. You can invest in muni bonds, make it tax-free interest. You can invest in an annuity wrapper inside the trust and keep the growth inside the annuity, not inside the trust, and then pass it out of the annuity into the trust and then from the trust to the son and be taxed at the son's rate. So there's, there's a lot of ways once a tax-favorable asset has been paid into a discretionary trust to keep the annual tax burden low, but you're not going to be able to eliminate it totally, and there will always be annual trust tax returns that must be filed if the earnings are not passed to the special needs child, if they're held inside the trust. Earnings will ultimately be taxed where they end up, by December 31st. If they stay in the trust, they're going to be taxed to the trust. If they go to the human, they'll be taxed at the human's rate. So any discretionary trust, you should not be naming Joe Blow as the trustee, especially a special needs trust. There are corporate trustees who specialize, no pun intended, in being trustees of special needs trusts. I strongly recommend you consider 
a professional trustee with a special needs trust and pretty much with any discretionary trust, but that's just my opinion. Anyways, back to his question. So now he says, uh, trust, okay, would a second to die policy still make sense for us? Or are there any better options for us to fund this special needs trust now that it's 2023 and your podcast was way back in 2019? So without getting in too deep on this, he's got $4 million, Chris, in IRAs. RMDs don't start. They're only in their early 60s. They're not going to start for them Till they're 73, um, they missed the 75. They will start at 73. Was one, yeah, the 60. Yeah, you have to have been born 1960. So actually, no, they made it, didn't they? By the skin of their teeth. Yeah, so he just wrote that. Is this a recent email that just came in? He came in last year in 23. So in 23, they were 63, 63. and 61. So they made it. So their RMDs yep. will be 65, uh, excuse 75. me, 75. Mm-hmm. 75. So there's a lot of years of growth on that 4 million. If they just let this 4 million continue to grow, which which it will grow, and their $2 million of brokerage assets will also grow, even though they're going to consume some, they have $6 million total. Could they benefit from a second to die guaranteed universal life policy? Here's where I want them to go, and you opine as you see fit, Chris. But when we deliver plans, and I've recently announced everyone I've been, quote unquote, pulled out of retirement, and I've started delivering plans again, as we train one of our junior planners on delivering plans. His name is Jake. So I've been starting to deliver plans again. And I've started to go back to some verbiage that I used to use with people that you can have excessive RMDs and excess RMDs. There's a difference between the two. An excessive RMD is totally subjective. Now with $4 million, many people sitting there saying they're going to have massive RMDs, especially because they don't need to take them out for about another 12 to 14 years. These RMDs are going to be massive. They're going to be excessive. Now, who's to say it's excessive? Maybe they're going to spend all that money. And what's excessive to you is barely covering their living expenses. I don't get that impression with this couple. But my point is, an excessive RMD is subjective. But an excess RMD needs to be addressed. And that's what I want to talk to these people about. I can't answer your question on if a second to die guaranteeing universal life policy is beneficial for you or not without first seeing, do you have excess RMDs? What's an excess RMD? To us, when we take into effect your minimum dignity floor and your projected fund spending, and we subtract that with your uh, Social Security income, pension income, and annuity income, and we throw your RMD on top of it. 
if there's still excess RMD, you didn't need it all. And excess RMD is a required distribution you're being forced to take above and beyond all your spending, netting out your secure income. That's an excess RMD. And there's only four things you can do with an excess RMD. Spend it, save it, give it away, or leverage it. And that's what he's talking about. Should they buy a second-to-die guaranteed universal life policy? They indicated they're both in early 60s and they're both healthy. If they have estimated excess payments, they have enough money to most likely afford premiums. Should they start debiting their IRA now and use those premium, uh, those debits to fund a second-to-die guaranteed universal life policy? Because at 75, if they have excess RMDs, they got to do something with that money anyways. And when I say leverage it, it's when you take 8000 10000 15000 18000 whatever the number may be, of money per year, and you give it to an insurance company that will instead grow those assets in a guaranteed universal life policy that might pay out a million, a million and a half, two million of 100% income tax-free dollars and estate tax-free dollars if structured properly. I don't know. Does Minnesota have an estate tax, Chris? So what I'm going to encourage this listener and anybody with excess RMDs, not excessive. Excessive is just someone's opinion that you have a large IRA and you have excessive RMDs. But we're concerned with excess RMDs. That's above and beyond what you need. What are you going to do with it? The advantage to leveraging it in a second-to-die guaranteed universal life policy, folks, is, first of all, insuring two lives, not one life, is always cheaper. So by doing it as a second-to-die, that's both the husband and wife are being insured on this policy. Premiums are significantly cheaper on a second-to-die life insurance policy than a single-life policy. And they're looking to help their disabled son after their death. So it doesn't pay out until the second spouse dies. So it's not life insurance designed to help replace lost pension or annuity or social security income of someone. It's a a policy that's being designed because the spouses have enough to survive as a widow widower. They want to benefit their child. All this tax-free money can go a long way to helping their child. It could also go a long way to paying the taxes that the trust will owe inheriting the IRA. If the IRA is also left to the trust and still continues to grow even after being debited for required distributions after age 75? Or what if they both die right at 75 or early 70s or mid-70s? 
the one or two million or so dollars inside a second to die GUL that's 100% tax free could go a long way to covering the massive taxes that the IRA will, excuse me, the trust will owe on the IRA distributions. Or maybe by creating a second to die policy, which will be inherited by the trust, income tax free and possibly estate tax free. Combined with the brokerage account with a step up in basis and the bank account with a step up in basis, maybe they would feel more comfortable spending that IRA while they're alive on more discretionary fund things. Or maybe they have other children that they want to also help, but aren't special needs. Gee, you can give them some of the IRA, if not all of the IRA. Or better yet, Maybe they want to leave some money to charity as well. Now the remaining IRA will be inherited tax-free by the charities. The only one losing on this is your uncle because the insurance is received by the special needs trust tax-free. The brokerage account is received tax-free thanks to the step-up in basis. The bank assets are received tax-free also because they're already after-tax dollars. So the trust receives all this tax-free wealth and the charity walks away with the IRA also 100% tax-free. So yes, listener, I think you might benefit from the strategy, but you've got to look and see. You've got excessive, but do you have excess? Did you find out anything? I want to say anything, Chris? Uh, Minnesota does have an estate tax, mostly for estates over $3 million. So that's a threat here as well. So some strategizing around that is probably a good idea. That makes the insurance look even better. Yep. Because now the insurance will be held in an islet, irrevocable life insurance trust. And the beneficiary of that islet will be the special needs trust. Mm-hmm. So the islet will own the policy. They will continue to fund the premiums with annual gifts into the islet. The islet pays for the premiums and owns the policy. Because you see, if you buy insurance and you don't own it through an islet and you live in a state that has a a state tax like Minnesota at just $3 million, the federal government, the exemption is about $14 million right now per person, $28 million for this married couple. Now, in a couple of years, it's projected to drop back down to $5 million per person, but adjusted for inflation, they think the IRS will make it $8 million per person or $16 million. They're still well under any federal estate tax issues, but Minnesota's going to ding them. So not only are the feds going to ding them by holding the money inside the trust on income taxes, and Minnesota will ding the trust with income taxes. Minnesota's also going to ding their inheritance with estate taxes. Poor kid's going to get half or less of what he should have gotten. But if the islet owns the life insurance policy, and let's just say it's for $2 million, all $2 million will be protected from Minnesota's estate tax as well. So a little bit of tax optimization and forward-looking planning can pay off here. And if you have excess RMDs, you got to do something with them. Your uncle's going to force you to take it at 75. What the heck are you going to do with it? I'm liking the islet strategy more and more and the SGOL strategy. 
But again, I don't know anything else about you. I don't know if you have multiple children. I don't know if you're charitably inclined or not, if you're healthy or not. I think you've got some homework to do. Yeah, there's a couple other benefits to this leveraging strategy. If you kind of change the profile of what assets are going to flow to the special needs trust, if you've got that, you know, kind of leveraged with that large death benefit and you get to a comfort level that you believe the special needs trust is going to be funded with some, you know, favorable resources, tax favorable resources and and be adequately sized, what I've seen in a lot of cases is that then gives the couple permission to spend more of their money on themselves during retirement. Because a lot of times I see people very, very reluctant to spend their money when they're in the back of their mind, they're always worried about funding the special needs trust with ample money. If they can, you know, get some guarantees like with life insurance in place that can uh, provide them with a little more comfort level. And we see then people enjoy their own retirement while still taking care of the special needs child adequately. That's another side benefit of this. Also, even if you're not going to spend it on yourself, this could protect dollars. Would it would maybe allow you to take maybe less favorable tax uh, favorable assets, direct those to other children if you have them and and focus on really tax favorable assets flowing to the special needs trust. Just because you have a, a mixture of uh, you know, tax, you know, taxability in your accounts, the always taxable, maybe taxable, uh, never taxable categories. You don't have to split them evenly among your different beneficiaries and kids. You can make some conscious strategic tax decisions and direct, you know, more of the assets that work well with the trust to there while other assets that don't need to have this same kind of tax profile go to the non-special needs kids. So there's lots of reasons to kind of look at all the different options here and and do some uh, strategies in concert with a good estate planning attorney. You always want to make sure the special needs trust is written properly and is going to accomplish what you want. So somebody that isn't just a general practitioner but specializes in special needs trusts. And then also um, maybe you know a, a financial planner or tax planner that can kind of uh, look at the things above and beyond the trust itself and strategize around your taxes. See, this is a classic case, Chris, of my whole concept of the tax optimization number. Let's wrap up with that. Mm -hmm. I came up with this concept of what's your tax optimization number? Who are we tax planning for? And I call it your 210 tax optimization number. Are we trying to optimize taxes for two of you as a couple? one of you as a widow widower, or none of you as an inheritance. And that plays into what these people are trying to do. I'm guessing their ordered number should be 012. I think zero because of a special needs child. So they got to do things now to optimize an inheritance to their child to reduce or eliminate their taxes, even if it means they pay more taxes now even if it means they start taking money out of an IRA now when they could easily live off bank and brokerage assets and pay no taxes. Start taking it out of the IRA. That IRA is an albatross around your ankle, um, neck, ankle, albatross. Well, actually, an albatross is a bird, right? So maybe the bird is on its feet and it's around your ankle holding you with its wings. No, that, that's your ankle monitor that's around your ankle. <laughs> No, but an albatross is a bird, is it not? Yeah. It and then how do you get an albatross around a neck anyways? Whoever came up with that stupid saying? 
But I'm sure it has historical significance. I'm sure there's somewhere there was somebody had a bird around his neck and drowned or something, and they called it an albatross. But anyways, back to my little tirade here. For this particular couple, I think it's zero. The reason why I put one next in his ordering, they got a $4 million IRA. They're very close in age. The RMDs are going to be nearly exact. At the death of the first spouse, that surviving spouse, those RMDs, which are going to be about the same size, whether they're together or not, are going to be pushed through smaller brackets subject to more taxes. Their tax ordering number is 012. What's yours, listeners? That's important to know. And many people don't talk about this. A couple go walks into a financial planner's office or a tax planner's office, the default, hey, I'm going to reduce the taxes for both of you as a couple. It's why we started bringing taxes in-house. I got so fed up with us telling people, you got to go do this. And then their CPA later saying, oh, no, this guy's an idiot. What are you converting 130000 for? You know what that's going to do your taxes this year? And then people would come back the following year and say, yeah, I was going to convert that 130, but I talked to my CPA about it and he was dead against it. So I didn't do it. Well, the CPA is not looking forward. CPA is just concentrating on reducing taxes now. And I came up with the concept of 210 to hopefully get people to understand tax planning isn't necessarily reducing taxes for you. It might be reducing taxes for the widow or widower you or for your beneficiaries. And if that's the case, you can only optimize taxes for one of those three entities. Now, by default, anything you do to help the zero also helps the one generally. But you can optimize and reduce taxes for one of those three. What is the primary order? And it's something everyone listening to this podcast needs to consider. And in this listener's case, I think their optimization is zero, one, two. And I didn't, don't even know them from a hole in the wall. But zero, one, two. And these are some of the strategies you do to optimize taxes for the zero. Might be Roth conversions, but that could be unnecessary. Could instead be leveraging the power of the life insurance that you were referencing if you have excess RMDs and start withdrawing from your IRAs now long before you need to. In other words, the two, who's last in the ordering number? Zero, one, two. The two is last. You guys start paying some taxes now. So one of you as a widow widower and none of you as an inheritance to your disabled son have to pay much, as much rather, or any taxes. Okay, that tax ordering number is crucial. Mm -hmm. Don't lose sight of that, folks. And this is a good email example of it. Yep. Okay. Well, that'll have to wrap us for today. Um, Good questions, good mix of questions today. Not a huge quantity, but uh, we kind of had a two-in-one-er at the beginning and spoke a lot about uh, uh, Social Security claiming. So I guess we can count that as two, even though it was from a single listener. I would say technically it was five questions we answered. Yeah. Well, we'll technically count them. (laughs) So 
Next week, we'll have a new show. If you want to, again, submit a question for consideration on a future show, email Jim directly. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. Put in the subject line that it's a question for the podcast. And uh, as you heard, we always do a new question of the week. So you might have it a quick turnaround, might be a while, or every once in a while we won't get to your question at all. Uh, that, that does happen. We get enough questions. We can't cover every single one. But I gave you some tips uh, earlier about what can improve your chances if you've got a nice, concise question with uh, enough detail for us to answer that particular question and, and not ramble on about uh, multiple items. That usually increases your chance a little bit. But uh, just uh, send us what you've what you're wondering about, and we'll do our best to get an answer to you. Jim, uh, I'll cross my fingers for a a warmer beach day for you. And uh, stay safe. Don't twist an ankle on that soft sand. Well, see, now you jinxed me. Uh Uh-oh. You shouldn't say that. It's like, you tell someone, see you later, okay, break a leg. Um, (laughs) You just jinxed the poor guy. So yeah, now 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 I don't. Now know you're not going to go. I don't know now. I might just sit there and drink beers, and not risk mortal injury. Uh, the soft, the sand is pretty soft there. So if you feel like you're getting a little unsteady, just fall to the side into the soft sand. <laughs> well, if I, I sit there drinking okay. beers, I'll definitely fall to the side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, uh, thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jimhelps.com or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 